Welcome to another episode of the Ace Podcast with me, Pete Perfides. This is a space in which I get to talk about records and the way they shape our lives with a guest for whom diminishing shelf space is a similarly pressing concern. Um, when it comes to sharing the love of music year upon year, there are few people who have had quite the effect that today's guest has. From the age of 12, he's been earning to feed his love of soul funk and a little bit of reggae and pop too and that love moves in both directions through his legendary good time sound system his shake and finger pop warehouse parties his legendary high on hope club his years with kiss fm kiss 100 bbc london radio 2 and more recently soho radio and his involvement also with talking loud no dj has me hitting shazam as often as this guy does to this day he remains synonymous with rare groove a term he coined thanks to his original rare groove show to spend time with him is to get schooled in the gentlest most entertaining of ways and that's why it's my great privilege to welcome to the ace podcast norman j mbe hello norman god pete what an intro <laughs> how do i come back after that <laughs> it's all right we don't you know we, you don't have to we'll just yeah. have a lovely chat yeah. and then um um but then people can sort of people will know by then that my every word of my intro was was just <laughs> carried its own weight um how are you today i'm i'm good actually just been for a brisk walk a little bit cold um mm. the cold snap has taken us all by surprise uh yeah. but i'm never normally up this early after a bank holiday but um like most of us i haven't really had a bank holiday uh, no. due to covid because i'm normally um in recovery mode after a usually busy weekend but not so this year but hopefully in the next few months maybe august bank holiday i reckon your phone must have been ringing quite a lot i would imagine over the last few weeks <laughs> yeah well it, well my manager's phone has i've been rebooked um and and booked and added to uh, a number of festival um, lineups which is really encouraging but um, my fingers are crossed and until everybody is out there and events mm. have happened I'm still a bit um, skeptical but hopeful yeah I think we all feel a little bit we'll see it. we'll believe yeah. it when we're in the middle of it sort of thing That's right. yeah. Yeah. but you have I've been enjoying your uh, Sunday night sessions for Soho Radio and they have a really nice vibe about them uh you know, very sort of gent lovely way to end the weekend. And what they say to me is that uh, you, this is something you have to be doing, irrespective of whether or not the world is open or shut. I get the feeling that this is, they're almost as therapeutic for you as they are for us listening in. Oh, you're absolutely right, Pete. It's it's been uh, a real saviour for me. Um, if I hadn't been doing this radio broadcast for the last year, I really don't know. <laughs> where my head would have ended up. Um, I so look forward to it. And doing the show on a Sunday, um, call it Good Times at Home, um, has been real therapy for myself. And I didn't really imagine that it would be so important and helpful to the people listening. Um, but the one, there are many positives come out of, of doing the radio again uh, because I lost my mojo for radio for quite a long time um, for various reasons um, I, I fell out of love with, with, with radio to be really honest um, 
any was that what, what was the what were the reasons um partly because um the restrictions um mm. of what one could play uh, and, the, and the limitations uh, mm. that you know when i did a, a guest slot or, or a fill-in for somebody say for bbc six music for example mm. um brilliant though it was um i had to put so many more hours of preparation into it and the spontaneity was lost for me mm. um mm. for me radio um having been brought up the wrong way <laughs> uh, <laughs> through, through um pirate radio um as mm. used to the, the artistic and creative freedom um that um I kind of lost when I became, you know, a presenter on legal radio. And then with the onset of me doing my shows at home, yeah. uh, I rediscovered my love of, of vinyl. Um, lockdown meant that just before the lockdown, I quickly moved thousands of records from my external storage and brought them home with a view to um, putting them in, in my newly constructed music room um but they sat there for months all over the house um mm -hmm. and bit by bit you know i'm sifting stuff putting it it's the first time i've ever put records in any semblance of order they're still not in proper order i'm just not that organized and hang on it's the first time you've been yeah. doing this for decades yeah since i started buying records what happens when you like what you know when you're doing like a big set you know yeah. like i you know I'm, I'm trying to think of places i've seen you at like say the big chill maybe well, when i'm playing live pete what i used to do is i leave all the the, the current tunes or the tunes i'm into yeah. In, in my record boxes and my gig bags. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as I did for many years at, at Kiss, I never really sorted out music. I just grabbed what was there and made a show out of whatever I brought with me. Um, and I got used to working that way and actually preferred it that way because for me it was much more spontaneous, a little bit challenging. I mean, many yeah. of the time there's about 30 seconds left on a track and I don't know, no idea what I'm going to play next, but um, instinct always guided me. You're right. <laughs> to to yeah. play whatever I felt like next. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're in the, you're in the, but it kind of forces you to be in the moment, doesn't it? So Absolutely. You, are, yeah. you are, you are, you are part of the audience mm -hmm. and you are, you know, you just have that slight privilege, that slight advantage <laughs> of just having that choice. But essentially, you're channeling the the kind of expectations and hopes of everyone who's in the room. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right there, Pete. And doing the, the, the show from my music room, it suddenly it didn't at the time, but after a couple of weeks, it actually dawned on me that, you know, I'm having my cake and eating it. I have access to mm. perhaps about 90% of, of my records and CDs and tapes um, and of, of my entire music collection almost. And, and I can play whatever I want, whatever version I want, whatever yeah. bootleg I want. I can play anything. Um, and, it must have been great. It must have been, you know, that the most fantastically liberating feeling I can tell you. And during lockdown. So you have yeah. this enforced kind of you're in captivity, but you're yeah. in captivity. Yeah. Uh, but you're also simultaneously reunited with this massive resource that you have collected. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I kind of um, musically, I just um, rediscovering um, my record collection again. And that's the, 
the, the emphasis, the basis, the crux of the show. Um, I've kind of shied away from playing new music uh, and dance music because mm. that's what I want to do when I get back out there live. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then this was an excuse for me to um, revisit, and, and that, that, as you alluded to, we're all locked down. Um, and in this last year or so, I, I think um, especially older music um, has really come into its own and found its place. As we, you know, we remember happy times. Yeah. times I think you're freedom. absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone seems to, there's been a lot of nostalgia, I think, generally a lot during this. Well, uh, absolutely. Nostalgia has been the key to keeping a lot of people sane. Yeah. And, and Tell me about some of the things. Uh, let me just <clears throat> share with us a, a couple of moments, a couple of records that you kind of pulled out, and you know you had that sort of yeah. that Proustian rush, that kind of rush of oh man, God, I forgot how much I love this. Yeah, so many. Um, <laughs> you know, you put me on the spot now. I'm trying trying to think. Um, there was a track called um, Gringo, is right. one. Um, I can't remember his name. It's a bit early in the morning to remember names and titles. That's all right. Um, there, there was some cool jazz things which I'd forgotten yeah. about. Um, some obscure and and left field disco, um, which I've always loved. People who know me know that I've always had a continuing love affair with disco from day one because it yeah. was a, it was a gateway to for me to many aspects of black music, including jazz. Yeah. Um, I rediscovered my love of reggae again from a certain era, um, yeah. sort of mid to late sixties, early seventies reggae when I was buying it. Uh, yeah, and that, it's interesting with your love. Nineties hip hop. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, a lot of things, and so quite a lot of um, smaller label UK music. You know, Brit soul, Brit funk. Yeah. That's in the air. I think there's a lot of it. So I'm really happy to see that there's been a huge re reappraisal um, of Brit funk, uh, the late uh, late 70s, early 80s. Had its own sound, didn't it? And I yeah, think a lot, it, it did. A know. lot of the, the sniffiness around it was people not understanding that it wasn't trying to sound American. It was just being what it was. It was just yeah. reflecting the, the characters who made it. Well, well, I was a dancer in those days, and mm -hmm. all of those tracks were road tested with people like myself you know the late paul anderson um mm. and, and others you know we and we knew well i did personally know um some of the, the people who were making music then who were one minute they're with me on the dance floor next minute they've gone into studios and they're recording who are we talking about give me some names norman uh what's his name D david joseph Right, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, my best mate, um, Ricky, his cousin was Tubbs um, in Light of the World. Uh, oh, wow. There was, yeah, there, there was a few of them there. I mean, I wasn't close to those guys, but I did used to see them out all the time, you know. At, you really... You evoked that period really well in your, yeah. uh, in, in, your, in, your, in your memoir, Mr. Good Times. Right. Um, you talk about crackers in Water yeah. Street on Tuesday nights and going to Contempo and getting the latest records. Before, yeah. I love this detail, you get them 
before they were featured in Blues and Soul magazine. So because <laughs> yeah. the moment they were featured, then they'd, they, they, they might not be there. Yeah. Well, we'd already moved on. I mean, in a sense, there, were, there was a few of us out there, you know, both male and female, who were kind of um, uber modern. We were only interested in the newest and the latest. I guess there was a kind of mad snobbery there because to us at the time, you know, once you'd heard it, it was old. Next. <laughs> and, and it was great. You know, it's a great. You want to be that guy. Involved. You want to be that guy who turns other people onto it. Yeah. Well, not as a DJ. I wasn't a, just then in those days. I was mainly sort of a record collector, hmm. um, you know, and I, new records came. I danced my ass off to them, loved them. Um, and just when you thought you'd been on top of it, you know, something else comes along and it was mm. relentless and yeah. I absolutely loved it. Couldn't afford it you know, at the time. Um, yeah. But it, it, it was mad. Yeah, um, it's, you, but what I was doing at the time was that, you know, cause many of those years in late seventies, early eighties, I was unemployed. Um, mm. Hard times. Basically couldn't tell when I was getting my next, my next gyro. Um, mm. to help get me through the fortnight. Um, but it wasn't until, you know, I got to finally made it to America in 79, mm. 80 and was able to go to secondhand record shops. And because I had the knowledge and remembered all of this stuff coming out, but just couldn't afford to buy it. And mm. I just basically bought up my back catalog of everything that I, I couldn't afford or missed out on. And in the process discovered um, other, you know, tracks and albums when any record collector goes to america for the first time mm. it's it, it's really overwhelming isn't it I mean, maybe not so much these days because there no. aren't so many record shops but um but in those days it was so cheap and and in the the black community you know because I, I subsequently and very quickly realized at the time you know the people who were going over to the states from from the mid 70s were all the kind of white northern soul djs who were looking for a particular sort mm. of music um, but myself, you know, being black, urban, l Londoner, I was mm. able to go into the heart of the black ghetto. I mean, <laughs> properly into the heart where, wow. you know, angels feared to tread. And, you know, um, food, black food shops, because I'd never encountered that, never seen that until I got to, to New York. You know, black right. barbershops, um, black yeah. food outlets, um, church fates, you know, black church fates. All of these outlets all sold records as a sideline. They had, you know, and those records were, were so steeped in dust because no one ever really bought records because records were so ubiquitous. You could buy them anywhere, even from the sweet shop. Well, <laughs> even in this country, you could buy them in the newsagent on the little yeah. carousel, the ex jukebox yeah. record. Yeah, um, you re you evoke it really well. I've got mm. to say that excitement in the book <laughs> and. Uh, but it strikes me that it was kind of a, you know, you were, you know, you, it was kind of a brave, brave thing to do at that point in your life to sort of, to sort of give, give over a sort of section of your life to the, mm. to, to this thing that you wanted to do because you just become a father mm. and um, you were unemployed and you're, mm. I, th I think you're only able to get over to New York because <laughs> of Freddie Laker and his cheap flights. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, 99 pounds return. Which is or, amazing. Or ninety nine quid one way. Can't remember. Well, what did tell me? What? How did it feel to be on a, to, to for it to be real to be on a plane? Having... Well, I've never been on an airplane before. That was the first time I'd ever been on a plane. Mm. First time I'd ever left um, 
England properly. I'd only ever been to, to France on a day trip before that by, by ferry, never been on an aeroplane. You ended up going to parties uh, once you were there, which I think in your book you said that they were a bit like <laughs> you likened them to the reggae blues parties that were yeah. happening uh, yeah. over over here, which were so beautifully evoked in Steve in Steve McQueen's uh, Small Axe series. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, series, amazing, really just uh, life affirming. That particular yeah. episode, yeah. I mean, you know, all sorts of other things as well. But um, so, tell me about. Just that, you know, it must have seemed kind of exotic to you in a way, I would think, as a sort of, you know, as a Londoner, you know, just suddenly having access, being able, having license to go into these places that perhaps, you know, sort of white kids of your age wouldn't have been able to go to. Yeah, it was amazing. But I, the one aim I had was to um, come back and play Carnival. That was my driving motivation. Um, you know, I wasn't going to go to Carnival unprepared. Um, so, you know, I, I didn't go there. Strangely, I didn't go to New York at that time to buy old records. It was only mm. to buy new records. Mm. Um, and I only really started to buy records retrospectively of release um, in later years, in the, in the mid-'80s. Uh, mm. But in those days, no, it was just to get new stuff. So when I came back, from, from New York that's that summer that August when I came to play at Carnival um, I was coming back with almost like brand new dub plates unplayed unheard and yeah. and naively playing <laughs> naively yeah well you why I mean, surely that's the point to play them well yeah but not it's it's to the crowd you play them to right you right. know it, it's fine if you're playing those records at Global Village or, or Crackers, but not fine if you're playing to a 99% reggae crowd on the streets of Notting Hill. Gotcha. Yeah, of course, yeah, because and and actually, yeah. that was you sort of entered into that with your brother, didn't you? Yeah, um, and you um, learn very quickly that you can't play yeah. with people's emotions. <laughs> in in terms of their, you mean their expectations? In their expectations and their reaction, and the reaction yeah. was almost. 100% negative. Um, definitely were not into the music I was playing at all. Um, yeah, so. When you were younger, you were a bit more fearless, though, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, I was, yeah. I, I, but that just made me even more <laughs> fearless. Um, and I was determined not to be, to be browbeaten into doing what everyone else was doing. It was a punk rock attitude, I guess. Yeah, that's a when good way. When you have that inner, deep inner belief that what you're doing is absolutely right, um, you won't be deterred from that path. Um, you, you, like you say, you learn a hell of a lot for just mm. from um, being. I mean, even things like hooking up electricity to lampposts. In yeah, order to, well, uh, needs must. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's genius, though. Yeah. But, um, and your brother Joe, so, yeah, like you say, you very much a partnership at that point, weren't you? Yes, because yeah, we, yeah, we, we, you, we were. He was on his path, very yeah. much on his path as a reggae aficionado. Mm. And so it, it almost, he kind of needed, you know, you needed him there to sort of give yourself the leverage to sort of Absolutely. play. Absolutely. I didn't have a sound system. All I had, I was armed with two things, um, music and knowledge. Mm. <laughs> um, the, the knowledge of the music. Because there are one or two other sound systems i wouldn't call them soul sound systems but there was a couple of other sound systems there at that time 
who were all dabbling in in soul and funk and you know, but they were playing to my ears at the time, the the cheesiest, most obvious, and I would never go anywhere near it. Um, but I was determined to come there and make a stamp and go right. Yeah, you know, I've got all of this music going back to the late sixties. That and I'm sure that if if it's presented to crowds in the right way, they would really get with it. You know, I wasn't going to go to carnival to play soca and calypso and reggae and lovers rock. There's 500 other sounds there doing that. What were your breakthrough records? What were records at the time that, you know, would just... Yeah, I can, I can still remember them. Um, it was what became a, an, our first anthem there was uh, Archie Bell and the Drells, Don't Let Love Get You Down. Right. Um, yeah. Because what we'd do, we'd play a little bit of Lover's Rock, which got all the girls around, particularly all the black girls that loved all of that. And... and, and and it was almost like holding their hands through the music genre. You know, if you played, you know, a, a lover's rock tune, then you could play Archie Bell's tune. Then you could play uh, a few. There was a few other tunes at the time. Archie Bell was definitely one. Yeah. Um, uh, it was Chic. No, Sister Sledge, Thinking of You, all those kind of gentle little yeah. things. Yeah. What they call mid-tempo. They call them two-step now. But, I mean, you touch on something there, don't you? Because yeah. I think this is kind of this is this has certainly been true in ensuing generations. Mm-hmm. But typically, um, it's it's the women that will usually dance before the men. Well, and women drive everything. I've always, that's that's some that's a dynamic I've understood from day one. I'm not really interested in boys and peacocks. They they come later, um, <laughs> and and their job was to to, to keep the bar busy. You know, um, because it, it, the UK was not club culture back in the day. It was not founded on clubs and music. Um, it was pubs. It was places that sold alcohol that had music as a sideline, <laughs> if you know what I mean. And that was pubs and bars. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So if the, if the bar was busy and money was being spent over the bar, they'll allow you to play whatever music you wanted. But if it wasn't, and the music was driving customers away, and, you know, I know that from hard experience. Uh, You know, you can be quickly uh, be removed from that post. Because I can remember in one of my earliest professional gigs, it would have been about 1981, 1982, where after three records, I was asked to, to come off the decks because my music was too black. (laughs) <laughs> so so you i mean i guess the error there correct me yeah. if i'm wrong but was it was your error there to just go too abruptly into the stuff that you wanted to play yeah absolutely and right. you know one learns or one doesn't learn that you know life is a compromise everything's a compromise <laughs> of course because you know you have to be a bit wily as well to sort yeah of, absolutely yeah. And, you know for to to ultimately help people to have a good time mm. tell me for a couple of things first of all tell me mm there must have been some key kind of bridging records that you would have in mind. So, like, especially if you're going from reggae to soul. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember that the, the, the one, there was always one staple um, um, soul or R&B tune, um, rhythm and blues tune, not um, R&B, um, that all the sound systems would, would play as like a commercial break record and to please the ladies. And it would be Nina Simone, My Baby Just Don't Care. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, that got played in every black christening, every wedding. Da, da, da. For all the people that never liked soul, that was the one acceptable soul record. <laughs> um, and I can't remember. Was, I used to play a Dinah Washington 
similar style, or I'd play Esther Phillips' similar style, right? And right. kind of let people know that there's there's more to it than that. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, and I found that though when I started to introduce those kind of records alongside Nina Simone, um, that they'd be accepted. Because you have to understand, in those days, I was playing to a 99% black crowd yeah. um, who were the hardest crowds to please. You know, when they like you, they'll let you know. And, and if why they're not so happy hard? with you, what, they'll what, let what, you know. <laughs> what, why is it so hard? Well, I, I think it, uh, because in those days, you know, black crowds and white crowds, I guess in their own way, were pretty conservative. They're used to hearing what they know. And when you deviate off that path, um, you, you, you caught problems. And I guess my attitude in those days was quite punk rock. Mm. Indeed, it was very punk rock. Um, you know, we're going to do things differently. You know, we're not going to swim in the mainstream. Yeah, yeah. Do you generally that was my attitude anyway. Do you generally try and hold more familiar stuff back yeah. till later because isn't there a danger that the familiar stuff it? always has a role to play and you, you you basically do that at the peak of the night i think yeah, yeah. um when there's karaoke sessions going on and people are really enjoying themselves and there's nothing that people crowds love better than a sing-along so but, you know. but we all have to feel like we've almost kind of like uh, earned earned that bit by sort yeah. of like kind of loosening up. But I like those records as well. You know, this this is the thing. I'm not playing them because I have to. Um, mm. I actually, you know, I like a lot of pop popular record and populist tracks. I love them. Yeah, I'm the same. I'm, I'm happy to play them when the moment is right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And they, yeah, and it should feel like a treat. You know, yeah. it should feel like they, they, you're playing them because they fit the moment, not just because. Well, it's an acknowledgement. You know, yeah. um, from from the crowd that you, you you're you're with them, yeah. you know, you're doing your job, you're entertaining them musically. You know, I mm. I learned from a, very early on. I'll play any music necessary that gives the crowd the best possible time night out. Um, well, I want to pick up on something you mentioned earlier on, which was <laughs> um, this th business of like you know the guys buying the drinks mm. and. Um, and it reminded me of another passage in the book where you talk about um, the, the legs that you went to, very enterprising and imaginative legs that you went to to give good times an edge over the competition. And so, you know, you had like ice cold beer and kind of fridges on hand, yeah. Yeah. which was a novelty, wasn't it, back well, in I was just, I was just mimicking what the, the legal and pub bars, pubs yeah. and bars were, were, were doing, you, you know. Yeah. And you couldn't go to a pub and, and buy a warm beer. But at mm. Carnival in those days on the street, you know, there was no way you could do that. And then just, I don't know, one day I was thinking, I was in a second-hand store. Well, no, it was actually in Port, just off the Portobello Road. A guy was selling a second-hand freezer, fridge freezer. Mm. You, know, you know, most families in the 70s had those. Mm. Um, and as, you know, they, they moved on with the technology, they were throwing them out. So I right. bought a fridge freezer off, off a guy on Portobello Market for like five quid or ten quid. Um, it wasn't even tested. Got it home. Um, we tested it. Um, it worked. So we said, right, we'll bring that. We'll stock it with beers and cold drinks. 
and we'll sell them. And obviously, you know, we were the only ones there with a with cold beer. So we had a and cold drink. So <laughs> my, my dad did a roaring trade all for the, the whole weekend. But that helped our costs. Yeah, you know, yeah. That's, that's what it was about. Yeah, Your dad was such finances. a great... Your dad was such a great wingman. He's such a yeah. great presence in the book. Mm. You know, very, very supportive. Your mum and dad were obviously um, loved each other very much, but in, in many ways were sort of different character types. And mm. the way your mum comes across is someone who was maybe slightly more careful to make sure that you're on the right road. Yeah. Whereas your dad... He just wants to slow. He was just cool. I was going to say, yeah. comes across as more intuitive. Yeah. Uh, he, you know, th th they were both brilliant and gave us the family support especially when we were embarking on enterprises like that. Um, when we moved from doing just the street parties to, to doing illegal parties in, in, in um, empty venues around London. Yeah, it, it was he great. was the guy that took the money home, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, because, you know, obviously I trusted him and my co-promoters at the time, whoever I was working with had the trust in him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's an adult. Yeah. Uh, uh, and he was scrupulously honest. So, um, yeah, we had no problem. Yeah, we, tell we tell me about, um, there was an amazing event that you described in the book where um, you had to switch venues at the last minute. And uh, I, yeah. not, I don't want to prompt you much more because I, I, <laughs> I, I want you to tell the story. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I think it was one New Year's Eve. It would have been in, in the 80s, either New Year's Eve 1987 I think it was New Year's Eve 1987 that the rare groove thing had kind of peaked in London and the home counties. It was it was massive. Um, mm. Bobby Bird and Vicky Anderson had toured and played at uh, in in Kentish Town at the Forum to sold out audiences, which, which you were responsible for. Yeah, but you know, going back to the, the New Year's Eve thing, my partner at the time mm. that I was doing events with. Um, were an outfit called Family Function. Um, they were from sort of Hampstead, Highgate, um, North North London, um, middle-class uh, Jewish kids who, who were brilliant. You know, Dan Benedict was one, and Judge Jules, DJ Judge Jules was another. Yeah. This is before he was um, before he was famous as a, as a house DJ. And we'd done a number of events together. Um, and I think it was Jules... Um, who, or his his crew, or maybe Dan, had found this um, old theatre, abandoned theatre on the north side of Southwark Bridge. It's long since demolished now, and right. huge flats and stuff there. But there was a disused theatre there that I I never knew. But um, the boys had spotted it and said it'd be a great place um, to to get in there and do a party. Um, and uh, Jules was studying law, doing his law degree at LSE, and then Jules knew enough to said that in order to protect ourselves, um, we need to put up squatters' rights notices three weeks before we do the party. Wow. So um, Jules duly did that, posted them in and around the, the, the venue, um, and every week I'd go and check and, and make sure that no squatters actually did get in there to scupper our, our New Year's <laughs> plans. And then on New Year's Eve on, on the morning, there was about a dozen of us there um, preparing, trying to prepare the venue. Then that lunchtime, um, three coppers um, walked down, one with 
so many stripes down his arm. I knew he was senior, right. and and I prompted Jules because you know we, you know we, we we had this plan that um, if the police came, only the white guys, poshest white kids, talked to them because if they knew it was us behind it, it would never happen. Yeah, um, and Jules had this, you know, um, pre-prepared spiel. Um, and the the, 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 the the sergeant of all the stripes <laughs> listen listen to Jules. Jules said they asked what we were doing there. I said you know we're students from the LSE and we're kind of having like a student party there. And it, the old Bill nodded in approval and that. And let Jules say what he did. And Jules pointed out to them the squatters' rights notices. And then the the, the, the cousin said, well, um, looked at Jules said, all well and good, but and he said you're studying law at the LSE, are you? <laughs> Jules went, yeah. And he said, "Well, you're you're you obviously haven't learned that much then, because with, pertaining to this squatters' rights thing, um, you've made a fatal flaw with it." And where we started to argue that, okay, no, we can't. We these notices have been up here from this date. Yeah. He said, "Your plan nearly worked, uh, but this notice has been planted um, in the city of London." Mm. And. You you cannot legally squat in the city of London, and my heart sank. You know you can squat in the Met anywhere in the metropolitan area, but you know there's two forces in London: the City of London Police, right, right, through a law to their own, and then the Metropolitan Police. Um, and he saw the disappointment on on our faces, and I'm, my head's racing, thinking, goodness, you know. He said, um, "You can find another venue." Uh, kind of reading his lips. He wasn't telling us to go elsewhere. No, but what he was saying, you can't do your party here. New Year's Eve, you totally understand. And I'm racing and I'm thinking, and then I had a light bulb moment. And I remember my sister, my younger sister saying, she, uh, she used to work for BT Telecoms, who had a huge office on the south side of the bridge, on Southwark Bridge. And I remember running up the thread and I saw the building was still empty. And I said, Jules, don't argue with me any further. Let's get the stuff out. So um, we crossed the bridge, and, and the old bill went away, um, and we effected entry into these offices that were empty. How so many hours have you got left by this point? Um, well, this is late afternoon <laughs> by then. This is about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It's what, starting at midnight or something? Yeah, yeah. So, right. And we managed to effect entry into the... The, the new venue, which is on the south side of the bridge. Yeah. Um, and and Jules was saying, and Dan was saying, let's just get get in there, get all the stuff from the generator on the ground floor. And I went, uh, no, I checked the lifts. And even though the building was empty, the industrial lifts were still working. So right. I think we went up to about the 10th or 11th floor off, you know, off the ground floor. So if the police came, they'd have to come up the lift to get right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and we managed to get all the gear up there um with my mate um Lyndon and and joey and we, we got it all set up uh, and it was amazing and uh, what I, we did was um, we broke a pane of glass to, to get in um and we'd scraped off a, a pane of glass from another part of the building and put new putty in and I, because I, I, I knew um, you can't be accused of breaking an entry yeah. unless you show signs of breaking an entry. Right. Okay. So, yeah. So yeah. When we took the lock off, so you, you know, covered your tracks. Really. We covered our tracks. So when asked if we broke in, said no, we didn't break in. It was empty. 
So we, we were up there. Oh, you and make it sound very exciting, but it also sounds terrifying. Cause, you know, yeah, you... but I was always calm about it, you know. I, don't, yeah. I never was never flustered. Because um, right. no, I, I knew in those days the police didn't really want to stop it. Um, there were a few bad eggs with the police, because um, on yeah. this occasion we discovered, because um, I, I warned Jules that, you know, not all police are honest. You know, mm. Jules being white, middle class, unfailing mm. trust, you know, in Her <laughs> Majesty's finest, didn't believe. And and I remember we'd, you know, about 500 people turned up really early and my dad took the first wave of the money away mm. um, and it got so busy. Um, when the police did come, um, we put the money in, in, the, in a couple of bags and then a squad of police broke in and they were searching all the, the offices systematically. For and the money. She, they were looking for the money. And yeah. we were pretending to be drunk and asleep. And Jules slept on top of the bag of money. And they, about three of them came in. I could hear them. I, that was the only time I was shitting myself. Oh, man. And they were picking up, you know, in the cloakroom where people put their coats and their bags. And they were shaking the coats, shaking the bags. So Horrendous. You know, you knew it was it was. It wasn't drugs because you can grab somebody and search them for drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so we we knew, and I said, "They are Jules." You know, that's the thing. Yeah, it's you, everyone's. You you know, you'll be everything's beyond the law at this point. So yeah. they're the police are the potential beneficiaries of, of the line that you've crossed. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, after that, strangely enough, you know, got on the mic. You know, um, the party resumed, and I remember distinctly telling everybody, you know, the whole this is the last New Year's Eve rare group thing, um, shaken finger pop and family function are, are going to do, and everyone's like, ah, oh, but this is the last one, um, and that was our last event that that we we did because it was getting too close, and every subsequent warehouse party that came after that. Um, got raided, busted, gear got right. confiscated, people were, were nicked. So, you could see um, which way the wind was blowing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Because by the following spring, um, Acid House had happened, which was brilliant. <laughs> London has been your playground, really, in in so many ways. And, you know, the, just that story. Oh, I, I love it. You know, yeah, yeah, that really yeah, illustrates it. Mm. And, you know, even sort of... Uh, you know, you worked, you worked on the river, you worked at, you worked at, I noticed actually like your publisher is based at Carmelite House, which was also the depot where you worked. Yeah, uh, well, I didn't work there. Um, the, um, Carmelite House was the former home of the old London Evening News. I don't know if you remember that when London had two evening newspapers. Yeah. The London Evening Standard and the London Evening News. That's um, right. You were, you were on the paper. That was your first pro proper job. Yeah, well, most of my mates had a paper round, and I was a van boy, a night boy. Come on, jump on the vans, running the papers into the shops after school. Right. And um, occasionally as a treat, I was allowed to come up um, to the offices on a Saturday morning at Carmelite House, and that's yeah. how I remember it. And um, it was amazing when I relayed the story to the, the people there, because it's all new, all modern. And I said, this, this used to have a print works in, in the basement and down mm. the side and then uh, fair enough they went we've got something to show you and they took me through a couple of doors towards the back of the building and all the the old um um not not the printer print uh, machines itself but all the, the part of the print machinery is still mm. there in situ they've yeah. they've they, they've kept it and i was staggered i hadn't seen that since i was about 
nine or ten years old. Right, right, God. Mm. Well, that yeah, another Proustian rush. Yeah, you were, um, you were initially reticent about following in your dad's uh, mm. footsteps, weren't you? Didn't your dad help to was involved with the building of the Victoria Line, or have I misremembered? Yeah, yeah, he worked on he worked on the, the, the Victoria Line on the construction. He was a civil engineer. That's Great right. Yeah. 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 And you were you you weren't so sure about following uh, in his footsteps because you sort of uh, you sort of didn't really think he got the respect he sort of yeah, deserved. Yeah, well, I remember I've, I've been out of been in and out of um, jobs since since leaving school. Gave up my apprenticeship, and I only really worked. You know, I, the one thing I was certain of, I wasn't going to um, turn to crime to make money. I mm. was always certain of that. But if right. you used your head, there's ways of getting around it. Um, and, and I only really entertained the notion of work to feed my habit, just like a junkie, you know, to mm. buy my records, to buy yeah. my clothes, to go to football. I, those were my only requirements. Other than that, I didn't need money for anything else. I was the same. I was totally yeah. the same. And that, I think that's why I loved, um, I particularly loved that sort of section of the book because mm. you um, – you know, it, it it just becomes almost like a matter of life or death to, yeah. to get the get those records because those records mm. are sort of sculpting you to become the person mm. that you're going to be. Well, even in those days, I had I didn't harbour any any ambition of being a DJ mm. um, for the record. You know, I wasn't interested in, in, in DJing. You know, and DJs. It was the music that was being played by them that I was into. Mm. Um, obviously, there were a few DJs who you know I admired and, and, and liked, but. Whenever I went to a club, I was always the furthest person away from the DJ booth. I never ever went near any DJ booth. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, you were. I think you said you um, you attributed some of your kind of p perspective on on what your dad did relative to where you were going to some of the increasingly uh, militant records that you were getting into. I guess it would have been the era yeah. of uh, of so, you know sort of political soul um, yeah. in the late early 70s really mainly yeah. i guess so many yeah. great records that came i mean i can see why because yeah. they're records that sort of sound like they're there to kind of mobilize you get you into thinking for yourself absolutely you know they were great motivational records and awareness records self-awareness mm. um yeah and uh, you know i was listening deeply to music like that um I love that little wave of like the Isley Brothers and uh, you know Edwin Starr and Buddy Miles, them changes. Sure, you know, just some an amazing little kind of like succession of yeah. records that sort of yeah. evoke that time. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, and we we were, you know, experiencing the same, if not similar, um, experiences of oppression, racial oppression, here. And I, I know I was aware, you know, um, that the British government were making sure those records didn't get over here to incite the black population here. That was the government's, you know, the Tory government's greatest fear at that time. Yeah. That what was happening in America, you know, um, mm. I wouldn't well, call it a riot. You know, we, we, we called it, you know, an uprising. Yeah. <laughs> they feared yeah. an uprising here. And that kind of manifested itself in... Yeah. 76 77 with the white working classes as well yeah um you know i, I can yeah. remember going up to grunwick's at cricklewood to watch the rows with the with, with the, the, the 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 miners and the pickets yeah up there. yeah you know? 
Well, I think we're, it's a, you know, the, the easiest kind of a war to start to sort of distract people from what you're doing is a culture war. And I think we're seeing it a lot at the moment, you know, mm. sort of suddenly, you know, making it, an, you know, imprisonable, like a 10-year a, a, a prison term for damaging a statue. And that's yeah. like, it's not really about the statue. It's just mm. about trying to kind of like... Well, steer. it's trying to frighten and control, you know, yeah. um, governments and nature and... and, and and, and states really mm. don't control. <laughs> Basically, mm. the internet is seen to that. Um, mm. you know, um, let's um, talk a little bit about. Let's just go back a little bit further because I'm, I'm fascinated mm. by this kind of this contrast between the brother that your the, the music that your your brother Jerry got into. Mm. Um, he eventually became a Rastafarian, didn't he? Is that yeah. right? And yeah, did, that, was, did that purely happen through the music? Um, no, it's just a, a cultural awareness of what was going on then. And I mm -hmm. think at that time, because um, most of my my mates were, were mixed and, and, and white and Asian, um, you know, I got into the whole sort of football thing, you know, um, quite a lot of um, my, my, my white mates were sort of um, skinheads, mods, um, mm. And, and the mod thing I always related to, I was just too young first time round. Um, but the legacy of that, you know, sort of skinhead, suedehead, you know, yeah, I was you... right, right into that the mm. big time. Um, uh, and understood wholly, you know, the spirit of 69 with, you know, the white working class skinheads, you know, who loved black music. Yeah. And all my mates did at that time. Absolutely. I remember it vividly, you know, 68, 69, 70, you know, my mates at school, you know, coming with me to the record shops, you know, white kids, you know, who'd never bought our music before, never heard our music before. They'd come round to my mum's house. My mum would feed them. They never had West Indian food before, you know. It's, it does sound yeah. like a very, very exciting time. And, then, you know, I've got into yeah. the music retrospectively. Mm. Um, I'm 51 now, so I wouldn't right. have been able to. You know, for me, two-tone was that you know represented that awakening yeah. of like what 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 had been happening on trojan yeah. um in the late 60s yeah. and um but it does sound you know and the thing that really mm. sort of amazes me now and i sort of mm. see it when i show mm. my kids uh you know sort of old clips mm. of like david ansel collins yeah. and um you know that whole it's they they don't understand how that music how yeah. these were like number one records because they're such strange sounding they're, they're, <laughs> of course they're but amazing they're records really strange at the time you know to see those people very rarely on top of the pops yeah when, you know it was a major event when any black artist was on the tv you know you'd you'd call all the family members everybody would rush into the front room to watch to see because it was such a rarity and it was only happening on top of the pops, wasn't it? Really, top yeah, of the pops, the first yeah. program. Mm. Yeah, and yeah, I, I remember. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I didn't realise this to be. I didn't really sort of think about it in those terms mm. until I interviewed Brian Brian Travers, the saxophonist yeah. from UB40. Yeah, you sort of. Um, grew up you know like grew up around you know sort of you know his mates were black and they were listening to that music so they were going to sort of youth clubs that were playing all that stuff absolutely so he, yeah. he was seeing it through their eyes and he yeah. said just you know he echoed what you just said which was um not none of you know it wasn't on it wasn't happening on dramas it wasn't happening on most no. of the films that you'd see so it had to be top of the pops didn't it yeah yeah 
absolutely. But that that, that was the, the, the you know a whole culture was mm. evolving and happening. Black culture, um, black British culture was was happening, and and the music media at the time um, chose to um, ignore it. Mm. And with the benefit of hindsight, it was actually the best thing. We were allowed to, you know, I can remember in the early 70s, though I never went, my sister went, when there was a huge um, reggae concert at Wembley. And all the Trojan thing, and I remember being too, I think it was on the same day the football was on, so I didn't bother go. I'm, I'm going to football, <laughs> I'm not interested. But I think my sister, my cousins went, and yeah. there was, you know, there was probably 50,000 people there. You know, nice. with God. Desmond Decker, um, every artist on, on Trojan and Palmer Records of, was yeah. performing there. And it was the first time, and I remember that. I, that was one of my regrets. I've, I saw yeah. a documentary of it, I don't know, in the last year or so. I saw I remember it. that, but I never went. And I remember my sisters went, my cousins went, because by that time I was more soul boy than, than reggae. I kind of outgrown the... Yeah. the, the that, that, that was sort of reggae then. I guess you um, wanted to be your own thing as well, and because yeah, of the path guess, that your brother was on, then yeah. you found you you found your thing yeah. as well, and also the mod thing that you describe very um, yeah. evocatively in your book. Um, you uh, tell me about the Deadbeat Kids from Acton Vale. <laughs> the dead, Deadbeat Kids. Well, they were just that they formed, you know, quite, they formed a, their own sound system. It was a sound system from the flats called. Sticksman. We knew all the boys there that they were playing. That they were very local. But you know when these kids just from the all they had was the youth club, right, right. And <laughs> I'm like, to this day, I hate all youth club games. You know, darts, pool, snooker. I didn't want to go there doing that. You know, when I could, you know, for fifty p, I could jump on a train, go to a a northern city and chase kids around another city for an afternoon. And that was much more fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what? So football, in other words? Yeah, football. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of my generation would relate to that. That's what, you know, I wasn't a hooligan, but it was just like being a member of, yeah. of a massive gang. You you know, had I was never you... violent, never got arrested, never got involved in all of that. But the excitement of going to these places and I used you know, latterly, in the, towards the late seventies, I used those places as a cheap excuse to get to clubs, hmm. um, and it was through the football I was able to get to Blackpool Mecca, go to Wigan Casino. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you about uh, that because you know you describe you, you describe again. I love the way you describe that because you obviously this is a little kind of microculture that's been hmm. kind of evolving for some time, hmm. and you turn up for the first time. And the first thing that's noticeable is that your clothes are very different to everyone yeah, else's. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'd read about the Northern scene since the early 70s. I was always aware of it, um, but n never been to a night. And I'd look, look at the records, I'd look at the charts that these, that these DJs were putting up and thinking, and not recognising, not knowing any of them, apart from mm. a one or two. Um, the Motown stuff I knew and loved, and... That's when I became aware of their kind of music snobbery, you know. Um, they, it, it's, it's a white northern working class construct with, with you know, that denotes their sound. Um, what the which is, which, the which is great, band. which is fair enough. Um, but what they didn't do was acknowledge that those same black records 
were appreciated by black crowds in a different way. Well, I don't want to say black crowds, by black audiences. Right. It's almost like we didn't exist and never acknowledged that. <laughs> Maybe because of the fact that when they put on their nights, there were very few, if any, black people came there. Right. And right. such was the, the, the racial attitudes or perceptions then was if you were black, you were into reggae. And, right. if, and if you were white and you weren't a headbanger into rock, you liked northern. And that's loosely yeah. how it broke down. But cooler white kids were always into the cooler aspects of black music. That I always knew and understood. Right, right, right. So what would be what would what would distinguish like a cooler white kid? What an example of a sort of a, a one or two records that would mark them out in that way? Um, uh, you know, it was my white mates who were into jazz before I was. Um, right. You know, they'd be into. You know, obviously, um, Miles, Thelonious Monk, you know, d deeper jazz cats. Did that um, come from the mod thing then? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, they'd be into stuff like, like that, which at that time for me was just too heavy. You know, mm -hmm. I like my music simplistic. Mm -hmm. I like love songs, boy meets girl, girl meets boy. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, four black guys or, or four black women dancing in choreographed style overdone. That's, that's, that's what I liked Absolutely. until the early 70s, you know, mm. when James Brown was saying, you know, say it loud, you're black and you're proud. Yeah. And I really heard messages like that in a big way. Um, but, you know, I loved all my Philly soul, lush string arrangements. I've always had a, loved orchestras. Well, the great thing is you don't have to choose. That's the brilliant yeah. thing, you know. And, uh, you I like what I like and I never made any yeah. apologies for it. Yeah, yeah. I'm very mindful of that, not to fall into this like, sort of elitist trap of liking single genre. I mean, the one person you can't lie to is yourself. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, you know, and if your heart and your head goes in that direction, then I naturally I just go where my music takes me. I like what I like. And what and I fact, don't like, I'll learn to like. The fact is that other people will, if and if that's true of you, then the fact yeah. is that, you know, there must be a, a lot of other people who are going to feel the same way. It's not. Yeah, like well, I feel so because I feel like, especially with the Sunday show, I'm connecting with those people. Yeah, um, yeah. It's you fantastic. know, there's certain rock things maybe I didn't like at the time that I've grown to like and appreciate. Um, but I've always had a love of Hendrix. I've always had a love of Thin Lizzy. Mm -hmm. I've always had a love of the Small Faces. And a lot of those sort of 60s bands. And when I was discovering them, um, I, went, I, I remember hearing quite a lot of that music as a child, brand new, loving them. And then 20 years later, or maybe a bit longer, 20, 25 years later in the mid-70s and early 80s, um, with the help of record and tape exchange, I'd buy yeah. these albums for like 50p or a quid. And then again, it was a process of discovery of, you know. Still uh, good. The record, the music. But I love this stuff. And then you realize that some of these bands, their biggest hit records were covers of black records in America. I noticed you played a bit of Rod on your show the other night. I always play that. I've always loved Rod Stewart and yeah. make my secret of it. Absolutely. It's not, it's not something I've done now. I did that in Kiss in the 80s. When I, I remember, I distinctly, I was the first one to play Lou Reed, Walk on the Wild Side on a black station. <laughs> really? Wow. And then I remember getting letters of, of hate. You know, why are you playing this rock stuff, Norman? Why are you devoting, you know, precious airtime 
to, to white artists. I used to get letters like that at Kiss in the pirate days in the 80s. Wow. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because yeah. it, I, I, I actually really like that kind of, you know, when you find a record from another yeah. genre yeah. that just actually just sits in the pocket of a it runner. It hits record. my soul, you know? Yeah. As I've got older, I've become more emboldened. I don't care now. At my age, no. I play what I like. Pass caring, um, absolutely. You'll either hear the beauty in it or you won't. It's quite it's punk rock. <laughs> no, totally. I, I, there's, yeah. no other tw- there's no other way to live, really. Yeah. Um, um, no, not, 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 it's not everyone who's as liberated musically as us. Um, it's just you've got to go with your guts, really. I think that's yeah. the bottom line. Sometimes it, it can be wrong. Sometimes it can be jarring. Yeah. You know, but even in the, the ugliest record, there's, there's, there's a beauty in there somewhere. Yeah. And, and some you know, of us will discover it and some of us won't. Or like certain yeah. records I'll just never get. <laughs> and another one will come along in five minutes anyway. Yeah, so absolutely. You know. Um, you glossed over it all too briefly earlier on, so I think we have to go back to it because I think this is an astonishing achievement. Tell me about the part you had to play in uh, in in uh, in James Brown's Funky People uh, and uh, and uh, Bobby Bird coming over, Vicky uh, yeah. Anderson coming over. Cool, yeah. I, well, the, the rare growth thing was was building up Fever Pitch in the summer of 80, 1987. Um, on Kiss, in particular, I was playing on on Earthing an awful lot of um, um, forgotten and unknown James Brown cuts. Um, yeah. Not just me. There was a few other DJs, particularly London DJs, who were on that tip as well. But the advantage I had is that I was on the radio with the biggest audience. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking, well, people, you know, the feedback I was getting in, in those days, um, people used to write in to DJs. You know, mm. I used to get um, fan mail and hate mail at Kiss. Um <laughs> And l- absolutely loving it. And going, have you got any more stuff like this from this era? I didn't even know. And I'm thinking, well, I'm sitting on tons of this stuff. And the more you want to hear it, the more I want to play it. And and uh, I did. Um, and then uh, one afternoon, I think, I was having a Sunday session, music and smoking session at my house. Mm-hmm. And my close friends, uh, Femi and Marco from The Young Disciples, came around one, one Sunday afternoon. I think we were having a debrief after a gig or something. And I put on, I was playing some brown stuff. And I think it was Mark that said, wouldn't it be great if we could get them over? And we looked at each other and thought about it for a minute. And I went, bring them up. Have you got a number? And Femi said, uh, I think, Femi or Marco said, yeah, we can get a number. We know Cliff White. And I know knew Cliff, not as well as they did, but we knew Cliff White, who was basically um, uh, the main, the go-to man for, for music and information on, on James Brown. He was the most knowledgeable right. figure on, on Brown. So I think um, mm-hmm. Remy or Marco contacted him and um, Cliff gave um, Marco the number for Vicky Anderson. So the following week, um, Marco rang just just randomly rang the number. She picked it up and uh, she didn't know us from Adam. And we were like shocked. And Marco said, you know, um, we, we, you know, we're big fans. We're from London, England. We're, we're, we're big fans. And your music is massive here again. Um, I think we spoke to Bobby and uh, to Bobby first. Bobby was great. You know, and then we said, we'd love you to come over. You know, we, we can organize something here. 
And Vicky being ever sceptical and ever the businesswoman, she wasn't sure. Mm. But then just off the back of that call, they said, yes, they'd come if we hooked it up. And then <laughs> the rest is history. Well, at that time, well, I said the rest is history. At that time, we didn't have the finance or anything. We couldn't get any backers to, to do it. So um, um, we did a, a bootleg record, massive bootleg record, um, which was... Um, Bobby Bird's No, you got no cross the tracks, right? Yeah, yeah, on one side, and the Jackson Sisters, I believe, and Miracles on the other. Those were two of the biggest records. So, what did what, did you put that? Is that the one? Because I've got a twelve inch of that, which That's I think 12, a white Urban. label. Okay, because then yeah. Urban put it out. No, they? this was years before Urban. We we oh, okay, know, right? Yeah, we, we we did this ourselves right. discreetly, and it sold masses in London record shops. And we mm. used that money to um, bring over Bobby Bird and Vicky Anderson for their inaugural show um, at the Town and Country in Kentish Town. And they so, were so blown away. The shows sold out. Both shows sold out. Um, where were you, can you remember where you, where you were watching it from? Um, I think I was on stage. I can't re re remember. There was so much going on, and my memory... She did message from a soul sister, didn't she? Yeah, yeah. and, and I played it off a tape. I played the backing music off a tape that we quickly um, <laughs> spliced together because she didn't have a backing track. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. I mean, this is real winging it stuff. And what yeah. I really, you know, that aside of that, it's a, I love how... And I think this is a real... Um, I don't want to get too deep, but I think yeah. this is a real sort of... Um, instructive thing for maybe younger people to sort of keep in mind because you know it's just important to just do as much as possible because doing right. stuff leads to doing more stuff and, I, and yeah. the, the reason i mentioned this is we this led to the formation of the young disciples didn't it yes absolutely with, with uh, their daughter carlene anderson mm. um, we persuaded carlene to, to stay she loved it so much she stayed for six months um got them into the studio and all this was happening at the time when Giles and I just um, started up talking loud. Mm. Um, so we signed them, <clears throat> put them in the studio, and nine, ten months later, they came out with perhaps my, my, my all-time favourite album. Still, over mm. everything I've bought and played and loved since 1967, 68, that album, Road to Freedom, is maybe because I had such a, you know, um, a hand in it. I was an A&R man. I was the person that approved the mixes. Um, it's an amazing record. And, um, and and it just is. It reminds me of the, the happiest working time when, when I had a day job working with Giles at Talking Loud. Of, yeah. You know, the best job I ever had was working at Talking Loud with, with Giles and co. At you know, the, end, the beginning of the 90s. Those four or five years were unbelievable. Didn't you want to sign? You wanted to sign Paul Weller to the label, didn't you? Yeah, we wanted to sign Paul, and Paul came in to see Giles and I. Um, but our head of A and R, who was a rocker from the sixties, just didn't get with people like Paul because Paul had been dropped by um, other labels because all the labels are kind of related. Um, they I were trying to really turn Paul into a bit of a pariah. Um, this is amazing but, how low his stock fell. Yeah, but you know, at that time, you know, Giles and I were in Paul's corner. You know, Paul used to, at that time, Paul used to come to my gig at High and Hope, my house night, every Thursday. He was there every week. Um, and that's where I got to know him. I was amazed and chuffed. That, wasn't that, it, wasn't that the reason he ended up covering Promised Land? Yeah, yeah. 
Absolutely. He was into house. You know, he was always forward thinking into new yeah. new music. And he knew that house music was going to be, you know, the, the, the next big thing by instinct. He knew it. That's the, yeah. the modernist in him. Totally. Still is. Yeah. You know. yeah. I love his current album as well. I'm playing quite a lot of his stuff. Or what the yeah. um, the one that came out uh, 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 last year on Sunset? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fantastic, isn't it? Mm. Have you heard? Have you heard the one he's about to put out? You know, he's made another one. No, I haven't heard that yet. But no doubt, I'll be hit up with it soon. <laughs> uh, I think it will. I think it will really. Um, mm. I think there are some tracks in particular that there's mm. a there's a kind of little run of kind of very soulful tracks, kind of kind mm. of running through the middle, which are just. Yeah. Absolutely. There's a track on it called Glad Times, which is like, mm. could be Bobby Womack or someone. It's just yeah. so good. But, um, well, Paul, you know, Paul is a fan of all of those artists. He's got, mm. you know, of all the sort of famous music people I know, Paul's record collection of black music is second to none. Yeah, yeah. Probably yeah. exceeds even mine. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. I've not seen yours. <laughs> well, I don't have that many records. I don't, believe. Many, I don't have as many records as people think. Right. You know, um, it's never been about quantity. People ask me, how many records have you got? I've got, you know, even friends who aren't even DJs who've got thousands of more records than I have. But Isn't it funny how people, I mean, I get this a lot. People always ask me how many records, I've, you know, I've Too late got. to start counting now. Exactly. How, 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 why are you going to count? I mean, so yeah. what, it's like the most boring thing you can do with your records is count yeah. them. Well, I know. do know that I have important records. Yeah. Um, both personally and musically and historically, I have important yeah. records and valuable records. Yeah. Um, and I used to be asked the question all the time, you know, how come you've got so many of these old classics and old records? And I said, the only way, and at the time when I was asked and gave the answer, I really meant it. The yeah. only way to have old records is to buy them new. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And uh, I did um, buy most of my records um, new. I was a singles collector and 12 inch collector. Hmm. And then when Record and Tape Exchange opened its first shop, thankfully for me, um, in Goldhawk Road in West hmm. London, I was probably their first black customer to go in there because all the black music used to be downstairs in the basement where nobody ever went. <laughs> and I would come back from playing my playing for my Sunday pub side in the morning. They'd all be going to the pub for a drink. And my Sunday afternoons... <laughs> will be spent in the basement of record and tape buying James Brown gatefold US promo copies for a quid. <laughs> Do you go to the one now? We are in Notting Hill. No, I haven't been for for, for, for years. But um, yes. I you found some amazing it. finds in there. This is pre oh, pre the rare groove thing. I'm talking early eighties, nineteen eighty one, eighty two, eighty three. Um, and I used to pull a lot of black records out of there and sell them to other DJs and collectors. And that's why I became, for a couple of years, good few years in the early to mid eighties, I was um, self-proclaimed, you know, uh, um, record salesman. I used to sell a lot, lot of old stuff. I was like a mobile record and tape with black yeah. music, and I supplied a lot of DJs at that time who were up and coming. With, that's interesting. With a, with a sold a lot of records and swapped and gave them. It's yeah. interesting that. Um even now with the music and video exchange that once mm. left on the first floor, mm. there's still a very large uh, section of, of soul and R and B uh, mm. records, which are fairly inexpensive. And, you know, if mm. you know what you're looking for, yeah, you can, 
they might not be it's that thing of trusting your ears so they might not yeah. necessarily be valuable now but yeah. if you know what you're looking for you know it sounds good yeah. then yeah. it's just it's just a few quid you know yeah. and they're yeah. still there it's well amazing. i had the luxury of that you know 30 40 years ago when record and tape first opened because yeah. uh, i opened the first one in the gold road uh, because it was where all, because all of the, the record companies were based in that part of uh, London, then in Hammersmith, off the Askew Road, you know, Island, Polydor, Polygram, they were all there, and mm, and yeah. when and all of their record pluggers obviously were getting this stuff, and they would just dump it in there. Yeah, absolutely. You know? I used to. I I grew up in Birmingham, and I used to yeah. get on a cheap coach. Yeah from uh from birmingham mm. with um with loads with just a, a hold all knowing that because of what you said the pluggers and the journalists yeah they were just all they were just dumping them there yeah. and yeah. they were just like for, you pick things up for 50 pence that you yeah, could, yeah. like eight times as much in uh, yeah. in birmingham i remember finding a promo copy of tommy stewart's album tommy stewart wow how much 86 and i think i paid about three quid for it and it was in the rock section because no one knew what it was. <laughs> <laughs> Not a bad day's work. Yeah. Um, fantastic. Um, okay. Well, look, Norman, it's been, I could, uh, there's so many things we haven't got onto yet, but I know I'm conscious. Well, there'll of, be a part two. There'll be a part two. There'll, there'll be a part two. Be a part two. Yeah. And that way, and, ho and I think by, when we do part two, I think Spurs will have a different manager. <laughs> You're probably right. Can't come quick enough <laughs> for me. Yeah. Um, what um, I'm going to ask you one more question to sure. we, we've kind of gone up and down the timeline a lot. Okay, um, I'm just going to ask you. Well, we need to mention the book actually as well. <laughs> yeah, I've 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 passingly yeah. referenced it, but let's give it a proper plug. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Good Times, the yeah. great Lloyd Bradley helped you to write it. Yeah, and uh, and it's out on Dialogue Books. It's also out as an audio book, which I can also recommend. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh yeah it's um it's a real it's an absolute like you evoke the the periods that you write about so well and the excitement of of all the different discoveries you've made mm -hmm. in your life um it's a it's a fantastic book and it's just um thank you Pete it's a rattling good read um which of those where in this if you if you were able to kind of get into a tardis and go back to one point in the timeline where would you go yeah, great question. Great question. Because all of it's good. I've had no, no regrets. But it would be probably um, New York, I think. Right. Okay. Going to New York for the first time. Mm. And immersing myself in, in black culture, yeah. uh, New York style. Um, yeah, it was just wonderment. Um, yeah, I was, I was old enough then. I think I was 21 or 22. I was old enough and astute enough to take in everything that was going on around me. Yeah. Um, visiting places, taking it all in, just real culture vulture from a black perspective. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the, those are the days, aren't they, where you sort yeah. of, you know, you do like three weeks of learning in one day, you know. You yeah, sort of, well, I, I did everything for the yeah. three or four months I was there. I went everywhere, yeah. did everything. In those days, it was great because in the summer, they were allowed to turn on the fire hydrants. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, you know, we, they'd turn on the fire hydrants at the end of my aunt's street. 
Uh, and it's amazing because my, my aunt lives and still lives um, in in Crown Heights. And it was only when oh. I got there that I realised, oh, this is where Crown Heights Affair come from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love those moments. I had, I had a bit of a dumb realization. The, yeah. well, dumb, dumb because I, sh- I don't know why it took me so long to realize it. Yeah. But um, I was looking up. Um, I was getting my show ready. I was going to play. I was, I was going to one of the tracks I was going to play was "Don't Stop the Music" by Yarbrough and Peoples. Yeah. And um, and I, just, I thought, I thought Yarbrough, I thought Yarbrough and Peoples was a name like you know, like Legs and Co. Like the yeah. pe- I didn't realize Peoples yeah. was her. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I uh, actually saw them quickly. That was the story. I, I, I saw them in my first year that, doing a show in, in New York in 1980, the second year I went. Yeah, wow. I, I saw them live at the Yankee Stadium. Wow. What, with the Gap Band, presumably? Yeah, with Gap Band. I think Lou Rawls was on the bill. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was about five or six major acts. Um, that is... Yeah. That's I love that is that that mm. sound that kind of gurgling whooshing electric mm. that keyboard sound with it you hear yeah. on Gap Band mm. records and the mm. SOS band that's yeah. and you know whispers it's such yeah. a it's such a it it's dated so well hasn't it yeah yeah um, Norman I've detained mm. you long enough thank you so much for uh, it's keeping been me company. my pleasure it really has been. Brilliant. Uh, You've helped evoke we... some brilliant memories. Um, Thank you very much. Thanks for allowing me. And yeah. I hope we get to cross paths soon. Yeah, we will. Well, it's up to you to line up a part two whenever you're ready. Okay. All right. To be continued. Leave it with me. Take care, Norman. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. For more excellent music, you can scoot over to the Ace Records website, www.acerecords.co.uk, for all the wonderful music you could possibly need.